I know some of you are about to faint because there's just so much. Um, but we have to do this. We have to do this. I'm going to read it as I go on. And by the grace of God, I want to preach this to you, not only for your knowledge's sake, but for our church's life together, for Christ's sake. Three weeks ago, we started our discussions on infant baptism by asking you to shift your perspective from you remembering God to God remembering you. You may say, isn't that the same thing? Well, yes, it is a matter of emphasis. But having that right order is crucial for us as we discuss infant baptism. Because as you deal with the topic of infant baptism and all of the arguments, unless you understand that there are two fundamentally different views on what the baptism is, you'll be confused forever. And someone that, who made that known to me, that fine nuance that I'm trying to explain was Sinclair Ferguson. So let me remind you of what he said. How the Baptists see what the baptism is. For Baptists, baptism is a sign of what the believer has done in response to Christ, primarily. That's how they see what the baptism is, primarily. It is a testimony of his faith. It symbolizes the believer's faith. The priority for them lies with the subjective you. You remembering God or you responding to Christ. For us, for Presbyterians, baptism is first a sign of what Christ has done and all that is in him to be received in faith. There are two parts to our definition. First priority is first a sign of what Christ has done. Objective historical giving of the sign. It's about God first. And there's second part to it of all that is in him to be received in faith, we do not nullify the faith. There is faith. Your personal faith is required, but it only comes after the fact that, first and foremost, a sign is about God. To highlight what I've just said, few weeks ago, we looked at Genesis 9, where the word covenant appears for the first time in the scriptures. 
God makes his covenant with Noah after the water dried up. And the emphasis there, let me read just a couple of sentences to remind you of what we talked about. God makes covenant and God gives sign within the context of the covenant. Genesis 9.13 I set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. And I, that is God, I will remember my covenant when the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. So, the sign points to or confirms the promise of God first. That's the primary function of the signs as you read from the scriptures. So I want you to notice just going in, our perspective is that baptism is first a sign of what Christ has done or what God has done. Then it demands faith from you. Baptist view, I'm not making fun of them, is really an upside down view. You could clearly see that. From many Baptistic churches, though they deny infant baptism, you know what they do? They do baby dedication. Emphasis lies with me. I dedicate my baby to you. But really, that what I am trying to say is not the primary function of the sign. Now, we turn to these texts that I've given you now. Title of today's sermon is Infant Circumcision and the Covenant Continuity. Today I'm not talking about infant baptism, but I am just going to see what God has done long time ago from the Bible in the Old Testament. And I want to argue that there is continuity between infant circumcision to later on infant baptism, though they are not the same thing, but they are both the sign of God's covenant. So, let's begin with Genesis 15. This is the second major covenant that we see after Noah with Abram or Abraham. Let me read a few verses. Genesis 15, 1 and following. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in the vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? Since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside. God took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants 
B. Verse 6. Then he believed in the Lord, and he, that is God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. That is what we want to establish first and foremost. If you will look at Romans 4 that I've given you on the right-hand side. In the New Testament, Apostle Paul uses that same text that we just read in Genesis 15 to argue for his gospel, that is, there's only one way of salvation, that is, only by putting your faith in Christ. We call that sola fide. So Romans 4, 5 says, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So, before we look at chapter 17, where we will see the circumcision, and same chapter 15, verse 18, what does it say? On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. So we could establish a few things. The covenant, as important as it is, covenant does not save. The circumcision, which happens in chapter 17, does not save. Or the keeping of the law of God, which happens hundreds of years later in Moses' time, does not save. What saves? In Genesis 15, early on, in Abram's life, in verse 6, chapter 15, verse 6, he believed in the Lord, simply as that. And God reckoned it to him as righteousness. You may ask, there's no Jesus. He's not believing in Jesus. But as I've been trying to say, the promise of the seed of woman was valid. And however small that content of faith that might have been at the time of Revelation in Genesis 15, we have to recognize that seed is growing. But it was sufficient for him to be saved. In what way? By believing in God and his promises. In his gospel promises, if I could put it that way. And Apostle Paul uses that argument that Abraham was saved before the circumcision. What's the argument that he wanted to make? So let us establish that first. Okay, Chapter 15, Genesis 15, Abraham was saved, if you want to put it that way, by believing in God and his promises. Now, Let's go to chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17 as you see it. Oftentimes we just read chapter 15 and chapter 17. But do you know how many years have passed in between? Best guesstimate is that at the end of chapter 16, though it is not here, he is 86 years old. And so chapter 15... Probably when he was around, I don't know, 85, 86, we, we just cannot be sure. But chapter 15 to chapter 17, more than a decade has passed. 
What that means is, people, God is not communicating with Abraham every morning. Hey, Abraham, how was your sleep last night? Did you eat your breakfast? Then he will have the Word of God, but only from time to time. What he will have communion with God. But as we could guess, so during those times, he has to live by faith. I simply want you to notice that as we read Genesis 17. He is 99 years old when you come to Genesis 17. Let me read Genesis 17. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. He shows up, he announces who he is, and what he is supposed to do. Verse 2. I will establish my covenant between me and you. It is not Abram. But it is God who is making this covenant. And by that we already know this is gracious act of God. God did not have to. But God does. God condescends to Abram. And gives him this promise and the covenant. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. By the way, he doesn't even have a son. Ishmael is born 13 years ago at the end of chapter 16. And he shows up after a decade later. And he's giving all these promises. I'm making covenant with you. And you will be father of all nations. While he doesn't even have his own son. Promise after promise. Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. That is the heart of the covenant, isn't it? When you read all the covenants, you will see that term everlasting. It's puzzling, but when you think about it, it has to be. God does not show up and says, I'm making all of these promises to you, and then it will expire in a week. By the nature of the case, covenant making involves God's faithfulness. It is a serious promise. And it is also made with whom? His descendants. Once again, he doesn't even have a son. And verse 8, I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land. Now, the land is promised to Abraham. Why? Because now they need a kingdom through which the seed of woman will come in God's time. God does not send Messiah right away. It will take Hundreds of years. And God prepares. Little bit by little bit, God reveals His promises to His people. So land. 
of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. That's the gospel. Only way God could be somebody's God is through the gospel. And now, look at verse 9. God said, Father, to Abraham, Now, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Abraham cannot contribute anything to God's promise. It is by grace. God says, this is what I will do. But at the same time, there's also human responsibility. And now, God will do the same thing what God has done in Genesis 9. God does not simply say and disappear, but God will give you some visible signs. In Noah's time, what was it? Bow, rainbow. And now, God gives them a sign of that covenant called circumcision for all males. Why simply males? Because they, are, they will be the head of the household. Verse 11. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. And it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Verse 12. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Verse 23. Jump to verse 23. What does he do? Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all the servants who were born in his House and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's household, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the very same day as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the very same day Abraham was circumcised and Ishmael his son, all the men of his household who were born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. Now I'm going to make a few points. Number one, adult Abraham already possessed saving faith back in Genesis 15. And the circumcision is given in Genesis 17, but the extent of the covenant goes farther than Abraham. As you have read over and over again, to every male in his household, even the foreigners, slaves, whomever, bought, born, every male 
simply because they belong to their master Abraham, they were given the sign to all of the males. We said in the beginning that covenant sign was first and foremost about what God has done and what God says He will do in His promises. If God intended the circumcision as first and foremost as a proof of Abram's faith, he should have cut his skin in Genesis 15. So I want you to see that nuance, the difference, a slight difference of perspective, what the sign is. There is covenant promise, Then there is covenant sign. And as the people utilize the sign to remember God, they are remembering God and His promises. So the signs were there to remind everyone of God and His promises. And only in response to to God and His promises the faith will come about. We think of circumcision as unnecessary Old Testament thing. But stop and think about for a minute, why would God give a sign in the flesh? This is a very primitive gospel promise. The people back then, I don't know how many people were able to read. You know what happens when you hear something and decades later, you doubt your memory. You doubt whether God has spoken or not. He's 99 years old. They are nomadic people. They move around, so there's no centralized worship location yet. They are but a tribe. Remember when he went to rescue mission for his nephew, Lot? He had about 300 people, 318 or so men, but now probably he grew in his rich, so he's a, he's, I don't know, a thousand male, so very big camp, but that's it. And in that, God gave them the sign. And each and every time all these male look upon their organ to be noticed again and again and again and again, what, 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 what was happening? They are not, first and foremost, thinking about their faith. First and foremost, the circumcision will remind them of gospel promises that God has spoken to Abraham. Then faith comes, or should come. But the function of the covenant sign is such, and listen to this context. This covenant sign is given to the infants, as you have seen. Abraham, 99. Ishmael, 13 years old. And all of the servants, just to make sure, because it is so counterintuitive, in verse 12 and 13, God reiterates many times that you circumcise all of the people, not, even, not simply your own sons or future sons, but all the servants, even bought with money, everyone. So inclusion of the covenant, at least in the sign, were all of them. Infants, cannot respond. Servants, at this point, 
That day they were circumcised, but it would take some time for them to understand. God does not like external mannerism, because soon in Leviticus, they are reminded of that circumcision is pointing to the heart circumcision. So God is not content with simply giving the signs and forgot about the personal faith. But what is clear to me here in this text is that God insists giving them, all of them, the sign first. My refrain often is when you are confused, when you encounter something in the Word of God that's something that you cannot grasp, I always say what? Two things. Wisdom of God and grace of God. In our modern, individualistic worldview, what God has just commanded is reprehensible. How can God give the sign to the babies that can't even talk? Slave servants? They don't even know. But why? Shouldn't God respect each individual's decision, customs, heritage? Hagar is an Egyptian woman. Shouldn't she follow her own custom? Is God forcing everyone to believe in Him? It took me a while to think about this, and my answer is this. If the choice is between Big Mac and Whopper is one-to-one, you could choose either one. Hagar could choose Yahweh and her own Egyptian God. If Egyptian gods are real. But if there is water and poison, God has to insist upon the truth, the reality. Not everyone believes in this God, but I believe you believe. So in that sense, God, this God is the only God. And what God is doing here is God is giving all of them, the men, the future household leaders at the time, a ticket. In this world, at the time, Genesis 12 and on, only place where people could be saved. At the time, I'm sure there were Chinese or Koreans or, or wherever people were spread throughout. But only place a sinner could be saved at the time was where? In Abraham. Because God has spoken to him and no one else. So what God is doing is giving all the males within the household a ticket. Just because they hold a ticket doesn't mean they are saved. Abram's faith is the ark. They are supposed to learn from him. Abram is supposed to teach them. And as they observe their master giving the sacrifices and so on, because wherever he went, he built an altar. So they were supposed to emulate his faith. So yes, personal faith is required as we have seen in Genesis 15. Abram believed in God and God counted it to him as righteousness. Sola fide. Very crude form of sola fide. But God is gracious God. Shouldn't we say, Abram, why don't you stand up and preach the gospel, seed of woman gospel? And those people who respond in his camp, thousand men, he's a rich man, thousand men, those people who respond in faith, give them the sign. Rest of them, 
or they chose not to partake in your faith so they don't deserve any covenant sign. That's how we think. But when you think about God's graciousness, just because they were close to, physically close to Abraham, God gives them signs. Whoever you are, God does not exclude you, foreign-born slave. You don't belong here. Think about that. At the time, all the idols, they served the majority. Powerful people. Not slaves. There's no gods for slaves. People worship. But what God is saying is, I want to be your God. You exercise your faith because that's how he was counted as righteous. I want you to see the grace of God as God gives them signs. Obviously, God is not content with physical signs. Amazing grace of God. Instead of trying to scold God, God, that's not the way. But God gives them signs first. God desires that all of them to be saved and exercise their headship in their household, leading all the household people to God. One thing I've noticed as I've been meditating this is something that I have not noticed before. Though we didn't read in Genesis 15 in between, Abram is skeptical. And I'm old, my wife is old, and how are we going to have a baby? Verse 19, but God said, but Sarah, your wife will bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him, with Isaac, not Eliezer of Damascus, not Ishmael, but Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And you know what I've noticed is that the true covenant heir is whom? Isaac. He is infant circumcised. If God wanted true living faith and confirm that first and then grant a sign, wouldn't you, if you were God, wouldn't you spend, let's say, for 13 years of Isaac because he's the true heir, not Ishmael, not anybody else. But the most important person in this camp, in his camp, is Abraham and his own son, Isaac. And I've noticed that Isaac was infant circumcised, not adult circumcised. Ishmael was 13. God did not wait until for him to try out, show some proof of your faith. Isn't that interesting? How the true covenant heir was infant, circumcised, before he was able to respond to his father's faith, or the promise of God that God had made to his father, that he and through him, God would make everlasting covenant. But that boy is infant circumcised. And that's the last section that I want you to turn. The chapter 21. And let me read those verses for, for us. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abram. In his old age, at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him, Abraham called the name of his son, who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham 
circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. If the covenant sign was designed primarily to symbolize one's faith, first and foremost, this would not make sense. Or you have to say, God in Genesis 15 and 17 is different God or, or not as wise as God of the New Testament. You know what I've noticed is that in the infant baptism issues, baptistic view really That confusion, I think, is there is because they only take the New Testament. They take New Testament seriously, Book of Acts. You look at all of the Old Testament signs and all of that is just thrown out. But what I am trying to do is to show you that you read from the Bible from the beginning. Whether you subscribe to Covenant Theology or not, it does not matter. I want you to notice the pattern that God has established over and over again. And I think God was wise back then as in the book of Acts. God does care about one's true faith, saving faith. But God wanted to give them the signs first and then let them use that sign to remind them of my gospel promise. I will end with this. Remember Isaac, the most important person here, will grow up noticing the sign on his body and to watch all that his father does and all that he communicates to him about God. This God who told him to get out of my old hometown and God who's giving me all these promises, promises. And he will grow up in that context. And I will quote Brian Chappell, who is known for his Christ Center preaching that textbook, and I've quoted him elsewhere, but I want you to hear this, and I will end with this. And this is such a thought provoking uh, paragraph. The blessing of the child, that's the title that he's arguing for infant baptism. Thus, the church becomes God's instrument of presenting the reality of himself, that is God, to the mind and heart of the child. A child with such an experience, fostered at his baptism and nourished throughout his life by a mature body of believers, breathes the truth of grace as naturally as, and unconsciously as he breathes air. It is possible, even common, for the children of Christian parents never to know a day that they do not believe that Jesus is their Savior and Lord. Such covenantal growth of a child is, in fact, the normal Christian life that God intends for His people. And it is one of the most striking but infrequently mentioned reasons that baptism is rightly administered to infants. If you think about it, in Genesis 15 and 17 and on, God intended the main body of his people to never know a day that he, they were not a belief, they were not believers. Yes, there will be convergence throughout. People will come to Israel's God and, and is converted, if you want to put it that way. 
and they will be circumcised, adult circumcised, just like us. When someone outside of our faith comes into our church and hears the gospel, and if they repent and believe, then we baptize them, adult baptism. They profess their faith. But God intends His covenant people to continue, as God has intended from Genesis 15, 17 and following, that they will have the mark set apart from their infancy, always knowing, confessing, praising, reading God's Word and the Gospel of God in Jesus Christ. So God never intended for His covenant people, covenant children to grow up and try out other gods and like live a, a sinful life, prodigal son type of a style. God shows grace to them. But God never intended for you to leave the household of faith and go out, do all that sinful stuff, and only by the intervention of God that they will come and repent and believe again, confess again. We sometimes think about that as that's ideal, more ideal way because there's more conviction we see. But from the Old Testament and even the New Testament, what God designed for His main body, for His covenant children, is that a child growing up in the covenant community set aside them from their infancy for God's people, as God's people. And in due time, as they grow up in our community, they will hear the Word of God, they will see it, in various ways and forms, and their faith will be nurtured, just like as Chapel said, just like breathing the air. I think that's more natural way, or God's way, for the main body of His people to continue generation after generation. If you see that, and if you could see that continuity, as we will talk about that in coming weeks, but today, simply notice God has designed it. And a long time ago, I want my people to be set apart from their infancy, grow up in a covenant community, give them signs, and every time they will be reminded of it, which also gives me that we are not, I'm not talking about just we, but people who subscribe to that infant baptism, we are not doing infant baptism well. Circumcision is marked, so the man will remember. But infant baptism, unless you remind them that you have the covenant sign upon you. There is life and death before you. And God wants you to go to the route of faith and life, that you come to the saving faith in Jesus Christ. Unless that is taught over and over again, reminding them of that, we are not doing infant baptism right. And that is the admonition that we should keep in our hearts and minds. My prayer is that may God remain faithful to His promises and I hope and pray that you see that God is gracious in giving His signs to His people and we as a church, we see this in a more continuity than this continuity. That it is our responsibility as people who are marked with that infant baptism, some of us, to utilize that 
to remind us of Jesus Christ and saving faith in Him. And we as a church, we will do it right. And there are obligations uh, from all of us. And may God continue to raise up His people through that method. Is my prayer for all of us. Let's pray.